Hi, Misfits. This is Kevin. And this is Kate. Welcome to Horrorwood. I think they get it. Yep. <laughs> so it's haunted theater time, y'all. <laughs> Which is good. I'm excited for this because the world is a horrible shit show, scary place. So this, I feel, is going to be like a lighter fun. Oh, it's going to be fun. I'm it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about ghosts. We're going to talk about theater history. Love it. We're going to talk about men being men. Ugh. We're going to talk about fires. <gasps> We're going to talk about someone getting poked in the eye with a cane. Sounds horrible. Two men fighting over wigs. Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) This is where Drag Race first started. Love it. Where's RuPaul? Oh, she's in history. Listeners, we want to thank Jessa B., our newest Patronian. Jessa! Welcome to the club, girlfriend. This is your shout out. We love you. Thank you so much. We thank do you. Truly, At, like, truly, truly appreciate it. 100%. Kevin's in a, he's had a few champagnes tonight. Two. <laughs> so he's in a, he's in an odd space. But just to prepare you for this episode, everyone. Jessa can... B. <laughs> Uh, but thank you so much. We love you. We appreciate it. We appreciate all of you. Thank you for listening. Thanks, y'all. Um, I'm taking our spooky adventure mm. across the pond hey. to tell you about one of the most haunted theaters in Britain. Nay, the oh. world. Oh, my. I'm letting Frankie back in because oh, she was baby scratching. baby girl. Welcome back, queen. <laughs> we are talking about the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in London. So when you told me we were doing this, I was trying to rack my brain to figure out if I've been there. Because I know when I studied abroad, like we went to a gajillion theaters because yeah. that was what I was studying there. Exactly. But I don't I don't know that I've been there. I So I thought I had like last when I came up with this and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I think I've been there. I have not been there. Okay. I have passed by it. Many, 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 many times. I know exactly what it looks like, but I have not seen a show there. Okay. And it makes me sad, but that's okay. We're going to talk all about it. I'll feel like I am there when you give me this episode. Yes. So, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, located in the heart of London's West End, mm. is one of the most iconic and historic theaters in the world. Wow. It is also the most haunted. Oh, ghosts. <laughs> There's one right there. Oh. <laughs> it's, its rich history spans over three centuries. That is a it's, long time. <laughs> it is old as shit. Wow. And it has, it. I will, I'll get into it. Okay. It's been, a, it's, lots has, lots has happened there. Lots has happened Lots has happened there. <laughs> uh, it has also played a pivotal role in the development of English theater as a whole. 
Great. So according to an article in Vogue by Haley Maitland from September 14th, 2023, the theater, quote, Mm -hmm. has produced, and this is a list of things that have happened, just random things that have happened there in shows. Oh, okay. I found this really fascinating. Has produced the effect of an earthquake by dramatically raising and lowering the stage with Victorian machinery. Oh, these are actual things that shows have done. I thought this was like you were going right into the No, not the ghosts. The ghosts are going to come later okay. we're going to talk about the history first, it, but it, this it. is a lot of the cool stuff that's happened there all right as part of a production okay uh earthquake Ooh. uh set 12 thoroughbreds cantering on a travelator to recall the 2000 guinea stakes i don't know what that is wait they had actual horses yeah. just running, running through rampant. the theater my goodness. Recreated a sandstorm using several tons of biscuit flour. Much oh. <laughs> much of which ended up in the front row on opening night. Oh, no, no, no. Given the illusion of 400 actors sinking beneath the waves following a shipwreck. Oh. And orchestrated an alpine avalanche so realistic that it almost fatally crushed a cast member on stage. Oh shit! Can I ask how how big is it? Like how many seats? Ooh, you is know, it? I don't. It's changed over the years. Oh, okay. Um, but l- just because of all of the uh, renovations. Yeah, because I'm but, just thinking like 400 actors. Well, it was an illusion. It wasn't uh, actually 400 so it was like actors. Mirrors. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How many seats in the theater, Royal Drury Lane? Let's look. 2,196. Okay. It's pretty sizable. Yeah. The musicals the theater has been known for since the 1920s, hosting uh, the West End premieres of Oklahoma, mm. Miss Saigon, oh. and A Chorus Line in the latter half of the 20th century. Okay. It's My Fair Lady, which had the greatest influence on the fashion world. And in general, like in this theater, it was like the one of its biggest shows that oh, it ran. Oh, cool. I o- love that show. I know. It's so good. I love it. Opening in 1958, originally with Julie Andrews and Rex oh, Harrison ah! in the starring roles. It would go on to run for a record-breaking 2,281 performances. Wow. It's insane. Think about how many times you have to sing those songs. Oh, my God. The origins of the theater Royal Drury Lane can be traced back to the Restoration Period in the late 17th century. Mm. The Restoration Period spanned from 1660 to 1688. So it was like 28 years. And it was was a transformative era marked by the reestablishment of the monarchy, Mm. cultural resurgence, and significant changes in politics, society, and the arts. Got it. The period began with the return of King Charles II to the throne after a tumultuous year, sorry, after tumultuous years of the English Civil War. Ah. Uh, the execution of Charles I, mm. and the subsequent establishment of the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell. Oh. Just some con- I'm giving a little context here on the Restoration era. Yeah. Just because, like, it was a short period of time, but I feel like a lot of shit happened yeah, that sounds like changed it. kind of the society. Yeah. Did you ever hear that song? Oliver Cromwell lay buried and dead. Hee-haw, buried and dead. There grew an old apple tree over his head. Hee-haw, Not at all. Over his- okay. We had to learn that in like when I was in like third grade or something. I love that. Don't you? We're going to re-record that. It's probably in public domain. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Sure, it w- I'm sure it is by now. <laughs> 
Um, so yes, the restoration period witnessed a flourishing of the arts and culture. The court of Charles II became a center of patronage for literature, theater, and the visual arts. Mm. So we're seeing a resurgence of the arts here yes, in this love time. It. Theaters were reopened, marking the end of the puritanical restrictions on entertainment during the Commonwealth. Boo. Mm, boo. This cultural revival laid the groundwork for the development of restoration comedy, a genre known for its wit, satire, and social commentary. Mm. Excuse me. The it's champagne the, is going to be bubbles. a problem. It's the bubbles. It's all right. It's worth it. Yeah. Restoration comedy. So the reopen. So we're out of this puritanical bullshit. We're yes. back into this, you know, opening arts, getting back into the theater. The reopening of theaters led to a vibrant period in English drama. Playwrights like William Wisherly, William Congrave, and John Dryden dominated the stage. I've never heard of any of them. Okay. Neither uh, have I. But I like William Wisherly's name. Well, it's W-Y-C-H-E-R-L-E-Y. That leads me to believe he's like maybe Welsh. You know how they do okay, all the consonants. Yeah. Producing works that reflected the changing social and political landscape at the time. Theatrical performances, particularly at venues like the Theatre Royal, Jury Lane, and the Duke's Company. My God, I'm sorry, I struggled through that. It's okay. Theatrical performances, particularly at venues like the Theatre Royal, Jury Lane, and Duke's Company became immensely popular. Mm. The period saw significant advancements in science and intellectual inquiry. Mm. Uh, The Royal Society, founded in 1660, became a forum for scientific discussion and experimentation. Look at that. Scholars like Robert Boyle and Sir Isaac Newton made groundbreaking contributions to the understanding of natural phenomena. They sure did. Yeah, they did. Natural. Phenomena. Phenomena. <laughs> phenomena. Do, 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 do. Phenomena. Do, 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 do. Oh. The- <laughs> Uh, the, this period was also characterized by a shift towards a more constitutional monarchy. Mm. The glorious revolution of 1688 marked the end of the Stuart rule with the, uh, with the accession of William III and Mary II. This event led to the establishment of constitutional principles, including the Bill of Rights. Because you need some principles up in there. Yeah. I mean, they're coming out of this really dark period of like horrendous political bullshit. Yeah. And I think everything's sort of revamping to be like, ugh, arts, fun. <laughs> arts. The Bill of Rights uh, limited the powers of the monarchy and affirmed parliamentary authority. Good. So it's taking the the politics out of the monarch great the restoration period saw a degree <laughs> of re- i'm just gonna keep Did it, it. <laughs> yes <laughs> saw a degree of religious tolerance with the passing of the declaration of brita in 1660 which promised liberty of conscience huh however tensions between protestants and catholics mm-hmm. dec- almost a decades centuries old persisted and the Test Acts of 1670 imposed restrictions on Catholics holding public office. Oh, right? that's shitty. The period was marred by significant challenges as well, including the Great Plague of 1665 mm. and the Great Fire of London of 1666. Uh, yeah. yeah. These events had profound social and economic effects, reshaping the physical and cultural landscape of the city. Sure. In 1663, King Charles II granted a royal patent to Thomas Killigrew, allowing him to form a company of actors and build a theater. 
Okay. Killigrew, in collaboration with the architect Christopher Wren, erected the first theater royal on Drury Lane in 1663. 1663. 1663 is when this theater was first established. That was a long time ago, y'all. Ah, Thomas Killigrew. I have heard that name. I have too. I, I mean, I'm sure I've had to study him. Thomas Killigrew was a prominent figure in the world of English theater during the 17th century. He was a versatile individual, making significant contributions as a playwright, actor, and a theater manager. Okay. His life and career spanned a tumultuous period in English history, marked by political and social upheavals, and his impact on the theatrical landscape remains enduring today. Yeah. So I'm going to go in a little bit on Killigrew. Go in. Go all the way in. Born in 1612. Wow. Killigrew belonged to a family with connections to a stu- to the Stuart court. His father, Sir Robert Killigrew, served as a courtier, oh. and this familial connection would later prove instrumental in Thomas's own endeavors. I was going to say, it sounds very important. That's what I thought, too. Glad we're on the same page. He received education at Westminster School and then went on to study at Christ Church, Oxford. Mm. However, Killigrew's true calling lay in the world of drama and entertainment. Follow your dreams, kid. Live your dreams. (laughs) It's not as hard as it may seem. I forget what that's from. Is that Save the Last Dance? Okay. (laughs) I don't know. So Thomas Killigrew's involvement in the theater began in the 1630s during the reign of King Charles I. Okay. Charles I, remember that bitch? <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. Remember that, dude? I think he was the one who was like leading the whole thing around the witches. Remember when I talked oh, about Macbeth? Oh, I thought that was King James. It might have been. You know what? Doesn't matter. It was a Go long time ago. To our Macbeth episode, and they're everyone. all dead now. So there. <laughs> I, should, I knew I shouldn't have brought that up. I was thinking it the whole time, and I didn't have wherewithal to go and check. That's okay. my bad. So Thomas became associated with various acting troops and quickly gained a reputation as a charismatic and talented performer. Hmm. Good for him. His acting career, however, faced interruptions due to the political and social unrest that culminated in the English Civil War. Ah. Nah. So during the Commonwealth period under Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell is buried and dead. He ha buried and dead. Whoa, whoa, he. Kevin does not know the song. I I'm don't, gonna, but I'm gonna add in my. I'm <laughs> gonna have to teach it to you. Thank you. <laughs> and that we should both just we should make an album of these songs because I have my. Oh my God, Kevin! Remember, that's a grand idea. Remember my um. There wasn't a woman all skin yes. and bones. I mean, that wasn't your song, but No, yes. no, no. It was my song that I wrote. <laughs> Kate and I wrote it together. I had never even heard of it, but I was appreciate. I appreciated you sent it to me. Always. So during the Commonwealth period under Cromwell, public theaters were closed, and many forms of entertainment were completely restricted. That sucks. Killigrew, like the other theater practitioners, faced challenges uh, during this time, and with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 under Charles II, the theaters were reopened, mm. uh, making the beginning, uh, marking the beginning of a new era for English drama. Hey. Uh, in 1660, Killigrew played a pivotal role in the establishment of two of London's most famous theaters, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, mm-hmm. hey girl, hey, and the King's Company. That sounds official. Very. He obtained a royal patent from Charles II, granting him the right to go ahead and form that company of actors, which okay. we mentioned previously, and be the manager of the theater. Okay. Uh, the patent was a 
big privilege mm. at the time for him to be able to do that because it granted a virtual monopoly on legitimate drama in London. Oh, so like no one else could go up and be like, I want a patent too? Well, this is coming from the king. Like this is like this guy has been tasked with creating like a real like I a big see. thing for okay. you know what I mean. So the, I think it was still possible to do sure. that and create theaters, but, but like, like was he the first? He's the first. Yeah, he, yeah, we're coming out of that shitty period, beginning of restoration area, and King Charles the second is like, please create this. Wow, that's a big privilege and honor and responsibility. A hundred percent. And Killigrew's theaters would become competitors with those of Sir William Davenant, who held a similar patent managed and managed the Duke's company. Ah, okay. So we got Got a little infighting. Yeah. Wellington. Ooh, that sounds good. Did I tell you that one time I picked Frankie up from daycare and I was waiting behind a person and they asked that person, okay, what's your dog's name? And he said, Beef Wellington. It was amazing. And they got on the radio and they were like, all right, Beef Wellington is going home. (laughs) Beef Wellington to the front. (laughs) I love it. That's amazing. It's always like when I have to go into the vet and they're like, who do we have today? And I'm like, schmau, schmau. (laughs) Schmau, dash. And they're like, can you spell that? I'm like, S-H-M-E-O-W dash. S-H-M-E-O-W. Thank you. (laughs) And Sarah Jessica Parker. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. It's a mess. Um, Killigrew was not only an astute businessman, but also a playwright. Kate, this guy is hitting all the bases. He's like, I got all the talents. Here you go. Here's a play for you. You know what? I'll act in it, too. And when I'm not on stage, I'll manage that shit. I'm going to manage this whole fucking theater. Yeah. I like this guy. Yeah, bitch. He party with the big dogs or whatever. I just need to say that... (laughs) As soon as Kevin said he liked this guy, he turned and burped. I'm like burping into Matt's clothes. Don't tell him. I won't. He's going to hear this. But that bottom rack is my clothes, and I feel like that's where it... No, I went like this. Oh, you angled it up? Okay. Towards the heavens. (laughs) There There you go. go. One of his notable work... uh, Sorry. So he wrote several several plays, often combining elements of comedy and tragedy. Like a dramedy? Dramedy. One of his notable works is the tragicomedy... The Parsons Wedding. I guess that's what it is. I guess it's a tragic comedy, not necessarily a dramedy. Because dramas aren't necessarily tragic. True. Tragic comedy. I like that. Well, you just said it. Tragic comedy. Yeah. So while Killigrew's <laughs> plays Ooh. while Killigrew's plays may not have achieved the lasting acclaim of some of his contemporaries, mm. they were well received during his lifetime and contributed to the lively theatrical scene of the Restoration period. Great. Good job, Tommy. Yeah, yeah. As a theater manager, Killigrew faced challenges and some controversies, Kate. And listeners. Particularly, <laughs> and I had to do it. I'm sorry. I knew I you were going to do it. I saw it in your eyes. <laughs> I decided. The I was like, minute. he just caught himself and he's going he's gonna to make gonna up for it. I'm going to fix it. Uh, particularly in competition when with Davenant's company. Mm, okay. The, the Duke The Duke. Guy. Yeah. Okay. The theatrical landscape was competitive. There were fierce rivalries and attempts to secure the favor of the royal court. I see. Uh, Killigrew's ventures were not without financial difficulties. Sure. But his perseverance and connections allowed him to navigate those complexities. I was going to say, because if the king himself is the one saying, start all this and create all this, shouldn't the king give him the money to do it? 
and the resources. Yeah, and I think if he, I think he probably hit financial difficulties, but because he was so persuasive, I think he was able to whatever money he couldn't get. Yeah, okay. or they couldn't invest. I think he was able to find that Got and it. get them out of debt. Is what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Tommy K died in 1683, leaving behind a legacy that underscores the resilience and creativity of the theatrical community during a period of significant social and political change. His contributions as an actor, playwright, and theater manager played a crucial role in shaping the course of English English drama during the Restoration Era. Good job, Tommy Kay. Yep, yep. All right, so Theater Royal Drury Lane is open. Boom. We're here. We're producing. We love it. We're running. We're We're having a a great time. We're We're making shows. Yeah. We're clapping. We're We're crying. We're laughing. We're taking a bow. We're going to the bathroom. We're getting drinks. Maybe. I don't know how concessions worked back then. But we are hungry, so we're going to find something. Exactamundo. But not too long after its opening. (laughs) (laughs) You really fell apart right there. I did. The theater was destroyed in the 1672 London Fire. Yikes. Also known as the Great Fire of Drury Lane. Oh. Which was a devastating conflagration that swept through the heart of London, leaving destruction in its wake. While not as widely remembered as the more famous Great Fire of London in 1666, this event had a significant impact on the city and its residents. What year was this one? 1672. Okay, so after mm-hmm. that. Okay. And the thing, I, I think I say this later, but the Theatre Royal Drury Lane was established at the time of the 1666 fire mm. but west end is west of the center center of the city and you don't London, say oh my god isn't that crazy aptly named so it wasn't touched by that fire got it the fire erupted on the night of january 25th 1672 at the theater on Ro- theater royal on Drury oh Lane. sheet 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 <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> to say, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Ghosts in sheets. Uh, the exact cause of the fire remains uncertain, but it's believed to have started during a performance when a piece of stage equipment uh, or a stray spark ignited the highly flammable materials used in the construction of the theater. Was it made of wood? It was made of wood. Yep. The flames quickly engulfed the wooden structure of the theater, and due to the close proximity of other buildings in the densely populated area, that fire just spread. I feel like I talked about this in some other episode, but maybe it was another fire, another place, another time. Don't know. I feel like everything's just catching fire at this time. Like any little thing is like poof. And yeah. it goes up in smoke. Yikes. This isn't the last fire that. Oh, jeez. So. Yeah, it went up and everything just went poof. The dry winter conditions and strong winds exacerbated the situation, turning the fire into an uncontrollable inferno. Ooh. Were people killed? Yes, absolutely. Oh, oh shit. I don't have a number, but yeah. As the flames leaped from building to building, panic spread among the residents and businesses in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. Everyone's freaking out. Well, yeah. Efforts to contain the fire were hindered by the lack of an organized firefighting infrastructure. Well, that's not good. In the 17th century, firefighting was a rudimentary process. Oh, wow. uh, Often relying on local residents forming bucket brigades to pass water from nearby sources. Just passing buckets to throw at fire wow 
And when the whole city's burning down, <laughs> it's not going to work. No. Unfortunately, these efforts were insufficient in the face of the rapidly advancing flames. Yeah. The Theater Royal Drury Lane was soon reduced to ashes, and the flames continued to consume surrounding structures, including homes, shops, and warehouses. Oh, wow. The destruction extended as far as the Strand and Covent Garden, leaving a trail of devastation in its wake. So about, like, how, what was the radius of that, or what? So if it was going through to Covent Garden and the Strand, that would probably be, like, I'd say five to six blocks Mm, either way. Okay. The fire raged for several days, and by the time it was finally extinguished, a significant portion of the city had been reduced to ruins, which that whole theater... Yeah. I mean, that's the theater area. Like, that's the district. And they're all made of wood. (sighs) Girls. I don't know why I said girls. I wanted to, like, say girl, but, like, (laughs) plural for the theaters. Oh, I see. It wasn't meant to be, like, a gendered, like girls uh, girls you shouldn't have built those buildings with we wood run the, we built those theaters with wood <laughs> the impact of the 1672 london fire was profound oh, uh, the loss of po- the loss of property livelihoods and cultural landmarks was a severe blow to affected communities oh. and the destruction of the theater royal drury lane was particularly poignant as it was not only a popular entertainment venue but that theater is also a symbol of a vibrant cultural scene in Restoration London. Yeah. Like that was one of the first things to come out of that. Yeah. So it was like the symbol burnt down like pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So in the aftermath of the fire, efforts were made to rebuild and reconstruct the damaged areas. The rebuilding process led to improvements in urban planning and architecture with an emphasis on fire resistant materials such as brick and stone. We're getting smarter, people. We're using better materials. Yes, Yes, we are. The devastation also prompted discussions about the need for a more organized and effective firefighting system. Yeah. What What a novel idea. I know. The fire served as a catalyst for improvements in firefighting techniques and urban planning, Mm -hmm. ultimately contributing to the evolution of London as a more resilient and well-organized metropolis in the following centuries. The theater was swiftly rebuilt, and under the management of Killigrew and his successors, it became, again, a hub for drama, music, and other forms of entertainment. Great. Over the next few decades, the theater underwent various renovations and changes in ownership. So in 1709, the architect Sir Christopher Wren, who mm-hmm. built the theater, uh, was commissioned to design a new building for the Theater Royal Drury Lane. This third iteration of the theater became one of Wren's most significant contributions to the architectural landscape. Mm-hmm. So built, burnt down, rebuilt, now it's going to be redesigned. Okay. And then, so that happened, and then throughout the 18th century, Drury Lane was renowned for its grandeur and opulence. Mm. New building, beautiful indoors. You gotta stay relevant. You gotta keep it classy. The interior of the theater boasted luxurious decorations, including a stunning chandelier. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which eventually became a symbol of the venue. Everyone was like, girl, look at the chandeliers. Girl, look, look up. Check Kevin out is lights. feeling a certain type of way Check in this closet. Out them lights. Lights <laughs> flashing. The chandelier, now known as the Royal Chandelier, mm. is still a prominent feature in the current building. Oh, wow. 
Mark the chandelier because we'll get into some spookiness around Ooh, I like it. Mm. The theater hit some controversy. Tell me all about it. In the early 18th century with an event known as the silencing of Drury Lane. Oh, I don't think I like that. I didn't either. In 1709, a dispute arose between the actors and the theater managers. Okay. Particularly Christopher Rich, who was at the time in charge of Theater Royal Drury Lane. The actors were dissatisfied with their pay and working conditions, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and negotiations failed to resolve the issues. Mm -hmm. As a result, Rich decided to close the theater and lock out the actors, effectively silencing their performances, hence the silencing of Drury Lane. Not the way to go about it. Let them voices be heard. Let them voices be heard. Let freedom ring. I don't know what that is. I think it's a hymn. Is it? I'm not religious. Then why do you know all the hymns in the hymnal? Our God is an, an awesome, awesome God. God. He reigns. <laughs> all of your knowledge of hymns from is just from hymns. infomercials. <laughs> so the closure of Drury Lane led to a period of inactivity for the actors, unfortunately, who found themselves without a venue to perform in. Yeah. Uh, the dispute continued for several years. Oh, jeez. And during this time, the actors sought alternative venues, including the Lon- the Lincoln's Inn Fields Theater. Okay. The conflict eventually culminated in the formation of the rival company known as the New Theater, mm-hmm. uh, led by actor-manager Thomas Betterton. I feel like they could have had a better name for that. Your actors, your <laughs> performers, let's theater. be more creative. They're like, let's call it the New Theater. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, oh, we oh, love it. Acting. Hum, hum, hum. Because it was probably all men. It definitely was. Yeah. The silencing of Drury Lane highlighted the power struggles within the theatrical profession during this period and the challenges faced by actors in negotiating fair terms with theater managers. This event marked a big turning point in the evolution of the London theatrical scene, Mm. uh, leading to the emergence of new companies and reshaping of the competitive landscape in the early 18th century. Okay. So it's like, it's that thing of like, we're going to break off and do our own thing. And fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah. I get it. I support them. Uh, Theater Royal Drury Lane has also witnessed numerous historical events. So let me just say that the theater did eventually reopen. I mean, okay. all those people went and did their own thing. Sure. And so it kind of, it sounds like it just sort of petered off. Yeah. Theater Royal Drury Lane has witnessed some numerous historical events, including the first public performance of Rule Britannia from James Thompson's mask, Alfred in 1740. So a mask is, I'd look this up. It's a, um, it's a mishmash of like theater, musical, uh, so is it musical theater? No, no, no. Poetry. It's just, it's like all this, all of these different elements that are combined. And at the time, these things were called masks. M-A-S-Q-U-E. Gotcha. So uh, the mask was called Alfred. Okay. And so that's where Rule Britannia came from, which eventually went on to become an iconic anthem associated with British pride. I see. Okay. One of the theater's most famous managers was the actor and playwright David Garrick. And there's a Garrick Theater over there. Okay. Who took over in 1747. Um, Under Garrick's leadership, the Theater Royal Drury Lane became a powerhouse of the London stage, showcasing Shakespearean plays and contemporary works. Okay. 
The actor-manager era at Drury Lane continued with other influential figures like Edmund Keane and Charles Keane, who further solidified the theater's reputation for excellence. Mm. So they had a good run of managers managers and programmers after the other, one after the other. So in 1809, it burned down again. Well, shit. (laughs) Things were going so well. The fire occurred on February 24th, 1809, and resulted in the complete destruction of the theater building. Uh, The origin of the fire was traced to a small workshop adjacent to the theater where scenery and stage properties were stored. Oh, no. The flames quickly engulfed the structure, and despite efforts to control the fire, it spread rapidly. Mm. Um, I think they they were trying, they had built, you know, tried to use brick and, but there was still wood in there. Okay. So it still caught fire. So despite the efforts to control the fire, it spread rapidly, ultimately consuming the entire theater. Mm. From here, the theater underwent another major reconstruction under the direction of architect Benjamin Wyatt. I mean, good on them. At that point, I would have been like, you know what? Maybe it's a sign. Right. Maybe it's just not meant to be. Let's just put up a pile of bricks and call it a theater. (laughs) Let's just call it a day. A day. The fourth and current building, current building, opened its doors in 1812. No more fires after this that burned the whole damn thing to the ground again. Okay, good. Well, I mean, good for them. They did go that extra time. Benjamin Wyatt came in and he's like, this has to stop. This is the fucking fourth time we're rebuilding this. Enough. Enough. And it's still there. The theater faced protests known as the Old Price Riots in 1809. Mm, I've heard of that. So I had briefly heard of it, so I went yeah. I, I went a little bit in on it to to tell you. Yeah. So the theater's new management, led by actor and playwright Samuel James Arnold, implemented modifications to the venue and raised ticket prices. Okay. This decision sparked a ve- vehement response from the theater going public. Sure. They were pissed. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No who one ob- wants to pay more money. I don't want to. Who objected to the perceived loss of tradition and affordability mm. because it was affordable at the time. It, like it did like class wasn't everyone could enjoy exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now um, it's like becoming for the elite too. Exactly. Yeah. This is where that came from. So they they people protested. Sure. They took to the streets. Uh, the protests known as the Old Price Riots gained momentum as audiences disrupted performances. Oh wow. Engaged in confrontations with management and even vandalized the theater. Oh, see that's not cool. The riots persisted for several months with the theater ultimately closing its doors temporarily due to the unrest. Mm. The public's resilience in demanding the reinstatement of the old ticket prices and the traditional practices of the theater showcased the powerful connection between audiences and their expectations of accessibility and tradition in London's theatrical landscape during this period. Yeah. So the riots lasted three months. Okay. It was said that as many as 20 people died and many more were wounded during these events. Oh my goodness. So Charles Keene... A renowned actor and manager took over the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in 1838. Okay. During his tenure, he introduced lavish productions and historical accuracy in costumes and sets, enhancing the theater's reputation. Charles Dickens adapted his novel Oliver Twist for the stage, and it premiered at Theatre Royal Royal Drury Lane in 1838. Oh my goodness, I've heard of Charles Dickens. Dickens himself (laughs) played the role of Fagin in the early performances. Okay. 
The 20th century brought various challenges to the theater royal drooling. Let's hear them. Including closures during both world wars. Sure. And changes in ownership. However, it continued to host significant productions, including the premiere of Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit in 1941. Mm. In the latter half of the 20th century, the theater underwent extensive renovations to ensure its preservation. The building was declared a grade one listed structure, recognizing its architectural and historical significance. Okay. The 21st century saw continued success for the theater with productions like The Lord of the Rings and Shrek the Musical, mm. gracing its stage. Also, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the musical, premiered okay. there. Also, I didn't know Lord of the Rings was a stage show. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think it was a musical, actually. Wow. There were a few musicals that I saw over there during my time in London that never like made it. Oh, they kind of it's it started and started stopped. and stopped. Okay, and one of them was Gone with the Wind, the musical. Oh wow! It was like five hours long. Shit! It got so much, so many bad reviews. Oh but Kate, no! I fucking loved it. You would. I loved it, and I was so mad that there was never a goddamn cast recording. Kevin is uh, feeling sorry. some type of way <laughs> it's tonight. The champagne. It's the French grapes. Uh-oh. Uh, so, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Who wait, is still alive. still alive. He's not dead, Kate. <laughs> okay, so Kevin came over tonight and starts talking about Webber, and I was like, but didn't he die? No. Kevin was... He told me otherwise. No, no, he's still alive. Okay. He's around. Sure. Uh, so he purchased the Theater Royal Drury Lane in 1999 with the aim of restoring and revitalizing the venue. Okay. The restoration project was an ambitious undertaking, reflecting Lloyd Webber's commitment to preserving the heritage of London's theatrical landmarks. Great. Today, the Theater Royal Drury Lane stands as a testament to the enduring legacy of English theater. It has not only survived the test of time, yeah. but has also adapted to the changing landscape of the performing arts. Staying relevant. As one of London's oldest and most prestigious venues, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane remains a cultural treasure, inviting audiences to experience the magic of live performance and the space that has witnessed centuries of theatrical history. Kevin is doing an interpretive dance to his narration, and I'm sad that this is not a visual medium because... That was beautiful. Thank you, Kate. You're welcome. So the theater's long and storied past has provided the perfect backdrop of ghostly legends and supernatural lore. I want to hear all of them. While the authenticity of these stories remains a matter of belief and skepticism, Mm -hmm. the tales of hauntings at the Theater Royal Drury Lane have become an integral part of its mystique. Dun-dun-dun. Sorry, that's Frankie. That was perfect, though. <laughs> it I was. was like, Mystique Dung. <laughs> <laughs> she hears a dog outside. One of the most famous ghosts associated with the theater is the man in gray. I do not enjoy a gray man. I could, but I'd need to see them first. That's fair. According to legend, <laughs> this spectral figure is said to appear during times of crisis or significant events. Okay. The man in gray clad in a gray cloak and tricorn hat, has been reported by numerous individuals, including actors, staff, and audience members. Oh. Witnesses report encountering this mysterious figure in various locations within the Theater Royal Drury Lane. This ghostly apparition has been spotted during rehearsals for Oklahoma, <laughs> South Pacific, 
Carousel. So he likes musicals. Mm. I see. And The King and I. Uh-huh. The origins of the man in gray are steeped in mystery, with several theories attempting to explain his identity. During renovations in the 1840s, a skeleton covered in gray rags was found Ooh. walled up in a tiny forgotten room. Wait, like a real like a real, real human skeleton, ske- yeah. Oh. It appeared that the man had been murdered, stabbed to death oh, with shit. a knife. What the were there any reports about who it was? Nobody or? knew. Oh. And also didn't know how old he was. Because this was, it was, he was found in the 1840s. Jeez. But, I mean, this is just a skeleton. We don't necessarily know that it's the gray man. Sure. But this, it's, you know. Part of Suggested his, yeah. that maybe it was him. One popular legend suggests that the ghost is linked to a tragic love story from the 18th century. They usually are. According to this tale, a young woman fell in love with an actor performing at the theater. Mm -hmm. When their love was thwarted, the woman was said to have poisoned her rival, leading to her own death. How'd that backfire? Did she accidentally drink it? Yeah, she... Tried to poison the rival, and I think she got killed in result of that. So the man in gray, it said, is the restless spirit of the jilted lover, Mm. forever condemned to wander the theater in search of her lost love. This is a very theatrical narration. That should be. Into it. (laughs) Another theory posits that the man in gray is the ghost of a soldier from the time when the theater was requisitioned. I wrote that word and I was like, what the fuck? Requisitioned as a military barracks during the English Civil War. Okay. The spectral figure is believed to be associated with a tragic event, perhaps an untimely death or an act of betrayal, which has tethered the spirit to the theater for centuries. So they think it's a soldier? Soldier, yeah. I see. Reports of encounters with the man in gray often describe the ghost appearing during moments of significance or crisis. As I said before, I think I said that before. He shows up when things are like, Not great, yeah. Some claim to have seen the spectral figure in the wings watching over productions, while others recount eerie encounters in the dressing rooms or corridors. The ghost is said to be a benign presence, though. He's not, like, threatening. Okay. Appearing without malice and often just disappearing as mysteriously as he arrived so he pops in he's like looks good to me and then pops back out everything's fine but it's not over the years various actors staff members and audience members have shared their experiences with the man in gray while many of these counts are anecdotal and lack concrete evidence Mm, sure they contribute to the enduring allure of the theater's supernatural reputation Some actors have claimed to receive guidance or reassurance from the ghost during challenging performances. Oh, I like that. uh, Leading to a sense of camaraderie between like this ghost and people who work there. I like it. He's just trying to make people feel good. I think he just wants people to do well. I think he's a theater lover. I think he got trapped there. He's encouraging people. He's like, listen. Things are tense right now. But you can but do you it. But you guys got this. Yeah, you can get through this. Do the show and make it good. Do it for me because I'm The dead. man in gray. So another ghost, Lee Presence, said to- <laughs> <laughs> Another ghost, Lee, Lee Presence. Presence. Another ghostly presence said to inhabit the theater royal jury lane is that of Charles Macklin. I 
thought you were going to say Charles Manson. And I was like, <laughs> really? Uh, so, uh, yeah, Charles Macklin was a prominent Irish actor, playwright, and theater manager whose contributions had a lasting impact. Um, again, another one of these big shot guys in yeah. the theater world, like running shit, making shit yeah. happen. His career spanned a remarkable length, and Macklin's legacy isn't only associated with his compelling performances, because he was a great actor, okay. but his role in the development of theatrical techniques and contributions to dramatic literature at that time. Okay, uh, He was born in County Donegal, Ireland in 1699. Uh, he began his career as a school teacher before discovering his passion for the stage. Hmm. In his early years, he performed in the provinces before making his way to London. So he was doing oh, okay. like regional stuff before gotcha. he went to to London. But once he got there and started performing, people were like, this guy's amazing. He's great. We love him. Yeah. Let's see more of him. Uh, Macklin's most significant contributions to the stage were in the realm of Shakespearean performances. Okay. So big Shakespeare dude. Mm-hmm. Renowned for his interpretations of Shakespearean roles, he was especially celebrated for his portrayal of Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. Oh, okay. Um, Macklin's Shylock was a departure from the traditional stereotypical depiction of the character as a villainous Jewish character. Mm. I think we mentioned Shylock in uh, the Disney episode. Because there's like a, I think there was like a cartoon that was inspired by the Merchant of Venice. Oh, okay. And Shylock was portrayed as very stereotypically Jewish. Anywho, his rendition of Shylock reflected a nuanced understanding of the character's psychology, foreshadowing a more enlightened approach approach to, wow. You've got this. You've got this! His rendition of Shylock reflected a nuanced understanding of character psychology, foreshadowing a more enlightened approach to portraying diverse and complex characters on stage. Okay. In addition to his acting prowess, Macklin made a significant mark as a playwright. His most notable work was The Man of the World, a comedy that premiered in 1764. Okay. The play was a social satire and addressed issues of hypocrisy and societal pretension. While Macklin's contributions to playwriting were not as prolific as his acting career, the man of the world showcased his keen wit and insight into human behavior. Okay. One of the defining moments in Macklin's career came in 1735 when he unintentionally became involved in a fatal altercation. Oh. During a performance of The Beggar's Opera, Macklin, in a fit of temper, struck another actor, Thomas Hollum, with a cane over a wig. Oh, they were okay. they, were, they fighting were fighting about a wig. wig. I thought you meant he struck him like on, on his the wig. wig. No, <laughs> sorry, that was a confusing sentence. They were fighting about a wig, and he hit him with the cane. Jeez. He was purported to yell, "God damn you for a blackguard scrub rascal!" Oh. And the bro, the the bro, the, <laughs> the these bro. bros just hitting each other backstage <laughs> over Men. wigs, y'all. The blow proved fatal. Oh my god! As he pierced Hallam's eye, <gasps> like it basically like stabbed him in the eye and killed him. Shit! This is so unrelated, but kind of is. In Hunt a Killer, in our first episode, she was killed with a cane. Yeah. <gasps> Keep this story in mind, Kate. I will. It might have clues. It might listen to the clues. <laughs> uh, this led to Macklin's arrest for and trial for murder. Uh, In an unprecedented move, Macklin successfully argued for a reduced charge of manslaughter based on the heat of the moment and the volatile nature of the theatrical profession. The The volatile (laughs) nature of the theater. 
right. I mean, back then, I guess it was. But he, they were like, yeah, 100%. Yeah. The, this event, known as the Hallam Macklin Affray, marked a significant moment in legal history hmm. uh, as it established a precedent for considering the circumstances of a crime and the defendant's state of mind. Interesting. Okay. Right? He never really received a full sentence and became known as Wicked Charlie. Oh, <laughs> that's not the nickname you want. Nope. Sorry. Nope. I, I don't know why I said nope. <laughs> You're, you're like crazy. two people right now. I know. Jekyll and Hyde. I'm into it. As Macklin continued to thrive on stage, he also ventured into theater management. Because why mean, not? Yeah. Who doesn't? In 1741, he became the manager of the Theater Royal Drury Lane. Great. Y'all. Y'all. A position he, <laughs> he held for several years. His tenure as a manager was marked by financial challenges Oof. and conflicts with actors. I would be terrified to get into a conflict. He's with like him. holding a cane, and you're like, "No, it's fine." I'd be like, "It's good. I'm good, y'all. We're good, Charlie. What Thanks. Do you need? See what ya. Do you need? Bye. Have Don't a great day." But Macklin's determination and business acumen did keep the theater afloat. Okay. In his later years, Macklin became known for his longevity in the profession, continuing to perform well in well into his 80s. Oh. Okay. Good his final performance was in 1789 at the age of 90. Oh, wow. Playing Shylock once again. All right. Charles Macklin passed away in 1797 at the age of 97, hmm. leaving behind a legacy that encompassed his groundbreaking contributions to acting, influence on Shakespearean interpretation, and actually pretty big achievements as a playwright and theater manager. Okay. Regardless that he murdered someone with a cane over a wig. I mean, there was that. Macklin's ghost <laughs> is said to linger the theater, actually appearing as a protective spirit. Interesting. Similar to Man in Grey. Mm-hmm. Some stories recount instances of actors feeling a reassuring presence or hearing Macklin's distinctive voice in moments of uncertainty. Hmm. It is as if the spirit of this legendary actor continues to watch over the theatrical proceedings, ensuring that the show goes on seamlessly. All right. All these ghosts are protective so far. I mean, I'm liking it so far. I like it. The Theater Royal Drury Lane's famous chandelier, Mm -hmm. often referred to as the Royal Chandelier, is an exquisite and grand fixture that has hung in the auditorium since nearly, sorry, since the early 18th century. The story of its haunting dates back to a tragic incident during its installation, which is said to have left an indelible mark on the chandelier and the theater itself. According to legend, the chandelier's haunting is linked to a construction worker who met a gruesome fate during its installation. As the story goes, the worker fell to his death while working on the chandelier and his spirit became bound to the magnificent fixture. Oh my goodness. Whether it was an accident, a moment of misfortune, or some mysterious circumstance, the details of the worker's demise have become obscured by time and myth. So we're not exactly sure. Yeah. Like concretely what happened there. Yeah. But somebody died when that was installed. The ghost associated with the haunted chandelier is said to occasionally make its presence known in the theater. Reports suggest that the chandelier has been known to sway or move unexpectedly. Some witnesses claim to have seen spectral apparitions near the chandelier, further fueling the belief that the ghost of the unfortunate construction worker continues to linger within the hallowed halls of the Theater Royal Jury Lane. I'm all for spectral apparitions, but once a fucking chandelier starts swinging on its own, I'm out. Yeah, I don't think I'd Because that sucker is going to fall. There's a good chance. I mean, once you're moving stuff, 
No. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go. <laughs> Man in gray. Macklin, don't hit me with that cane. <laughs> it's a musical review. It's a musical review of the Theater Royal Drury Lane. <laughs> Over the years, various actors, staff members, and audience members have shared their experiences and encounters with the spectral presence linked to that chandelier. Mm. Whether it's a subtle flicker of the lights or an unexplained movement of the chandelier. I hate that. Then there's the ghostly presence of Dan Leno. One of the most celebrated figures in the world of English music hall and theater. Is he related to Jay? Yes. Wait. No, no. I have no idea. I don't think so. (laughs) Dan Leno was actually, I think, his stage name. Uh, So born George Wilde Galvin in 1860. Okay, probably not related to Jay. (laughs) Leno was a multifaceted performer renowned for his comedic prowess, singing, and captivating stage presence. His association with Theater Royal Drury Lane where he performed during the late 19th and early 20th centuries has led to the development of haunting tales surrounding his spectral operation. Let's hear them. So according to legend, Dan Leno's ghost is a benevolent and mischievous presence. Oh. Often making itself known during performances and rehearsals. That's rude. Witnesses have reported hearing the ghostly sounds of laughter and light footsteps attributed to Leno's playful spirit. Some actors claim to have felt a comforting presence during challenging scenes, as if Leno's ghost is offering guidance and encouragement. How do they know that it's Leno's ghost versus Macklin's ghost? I don't know. I'm thinking there's some... I think there's multiple spirits, and I'm not sure they're really identifying them correctly. I see. Because, like, you know what I mean? Like, if Leno's mischievous and benevolent, why is right. he also, like, providing some kind of... Yeah, that was So my I think that was Man in Grey... Or okay. I think that was uh, Charlie. Got it. I think so, too. Uh, but whoever said this account attributed it to Leno, I think, because he was a comedy dude. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, he's oh. funny. He's laughing. He's mischievous. I see. Okay. Benevolent maybe feels like a bit of too harsh of a word to maybe describe him. But it's also said that Dan clogged dances in empty dressing rooms. I used to clog. Oh, my God. I took clog dance oh when I was God. younger. Okay. Funny story. When Matt and I first started dating, we'd been dating for three weeks and it was Uh Thanksgiving and we just happened to start dating in November. So he was like, do you want to meet my entire family because they're coming here for Thanksgiving? And I was like, okay. So they all had their regular family Thanksgiving thing. Mm -hmm. And then I was just to meet him over at his apartment. They were all going over there for like the evening. Yeah. And I get over there and they're just trying to like get to know me or whatever. Yeah. And I started mentioning that, you know, I had done a lot of dance and blah, blah, blah. And the subject came up that I had taken clogging and they were like, we're going to need to see that. You had to clog for Matt's family. I clogged for Matt's family on the first time that I met them. And we're still together 10 years later. So I guess it worked. I love that. Can you clog for me later? Sure. <gasps> Kate's going to teach me how to clog. <laughs> I don't have my clogging shoes, though, but I'll We're show gonna you. We're going to buy them. I'll show you the motions. Okay, thank you. I love <laughs> it. I look forward to that. Great. Damn. Clickety-clack, ba da ba boo But Dan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dan. <laughs> Dan Lena. Dances, clog dances in empty dressing rooms. I love it. And you can sometimes catch a whiff of lavender, uh, which Leno wore while he was alive. I think I like Leno. I do, too. He seems fun. Yeah. 
The tale of Dan Leno's ghost is intertwined with the vibrant history of the music hall era, which was a period characterized by lively entertainment and comedic performances. Leno's popularity and contributions put him kind of at the top of that genre at the time. So he was super popular. Yeah. But he died in 1904 at the age of 43. Oh, that's young. Yeah. And it led to speculation that his spirit may have remained attached to to the stage where he experienced some of his greatest successes. Do we know how he died? he died of a heart attack. Oh, that's awful. I d- let me... How did Dan Leno die? If you tell me he died me? while clogging, I will be so upset. Oh, I'm sorry. It, the the cause of death is not known. Oh, okay. So I take that back. It wasn't a heart... I mean, it might have been, but... Sure. No one knows. So then we have... And this this is a scary one to Ooh. me. The Haunting of Joe Grimaldi at Theater Royal Drury Lane is also a fascinating tale. Joseph Grimaldi, born in 1778, was a renowned clown and pantomime artist. I already hate it. Yep. Known for his groundbreaking contributions to the art of clowning. Hate it. His association with Theater Royal Drury Lane, where he performed during the early 19th century, has given rise to stories of his ghostly presence lingering within the venue. Mm, 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 mm. Again, according to Legend. Legend has a lot of opinions. Legend is over here. She's like, I She's like, got girl, the tea. Let me, let me tell you some stuff yeah. about a clown and a comedian. According to Legend, Grimaldi's ghost is said to frequent the theater, particularly in areas associated with his performances. Oh. Witnesses have reported sightings of a spectral figure in clown attire. Nope. Bearing a striking resemblance to the legendary entertainer. I would be excellent. Exiting that theater. The, well, just wait. Oh. The ghost of Joe Grimaldi is often described as a playful and mischievous presence. But dressed as a clown? Dressed as a clown, no. echoing his lighthearted and comedic spirit for which he was known during his performances. He's known to actually like give a little swift kick to actors. Uh, stage managers, ushers, and other theater staff. So he's dressed as a clown and he's physically assaulting people. Yes. Not my vibe. Some accounts suggest the ghost of Grimaldi is particularly... I don't know why I went into a whisper. That was weird. That was weird. Grimaldi! I look up and I have a clown face. I would run the fuck out of here. (laughs) Some accounts suggest that the ghost of Grimaldi is particularly active during pantomime productions. Because heightened comedy. uh, Contributing to the atmosphere with unseen but palpable enthusiasm. Others claim to have heard faint echoes of laughter reminiscent of Grimaldi's comedic routines resonating through the theater's corridors. Could also be Leno. Yeah. We hear some laughter. We hear. You Could know. be Macklin. Macklin, Gray Man. Gray Man. They're, They're all, all laughing, having a great time, yeah. making sure people feel good, having yeah. fun. Uh, except for Grimaldi, who's, who's just kicking, kicking people. <laughs> and then there's someone swinging from the chandelier. Oh, no. This sounds like a cool place to go in the afterlife <laughs> a club. Grimaldi's life, marked by professional success and personal challenges, came to an end in 1837. His enduring influence on the world of entertainment has made him a pretty big figure in English theater history oh. as a clown. Clowner. What was his first name? Uh, Joseph. That sounds really familiar to me. When so here's the crazy thing that I this is my last little thing I'm going to end with, but when he died, Grimaldi requested that he be buried with his head severed from his body. Why the fuck would anybody want that? So I thought the same thing, but then I read what it was, and it was to make sure that he wouldn't be buried alive. 
because he was terrified that of being buried makes alive. makes a lot of Doesn't sense. Doesn't it? <laughs> yep. I was like, what the fuck? And then I read that and I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you want to be dead when you're buried. So yeah. the, what way to ensure? I mean, I, that's why I want to be cremated. Well, for other reasons too, but right. burn me up. Yeah, I like to be warm. Me too. Get cozy. Get cozy in there. <laughs> hey, queens. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you're in there with a bunch of other people suddenly. <laughs> yes. So this request was fulfilled. But. If you tell me he was alive when they cut his head off. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. But uh, there have been reports of a floating clown head. Stop. In the Shut the- up. <laughs> I don't want to hear another word about a floating clown head. I draw the line at floating clown heads. In the theater wings. Nope. Nope. If I looked over and there was a fucking just head with white paint and big lips drawn on it. I don't know what the clowns looked like back then. And it's just floating around. Probably terrifying. Probably. Grimaldi was super pop, like a very popular figure. Charles Dickens actually wrote a biography on him. Oh, wow. Yeah, after he died. Okay, so while skeptics may dismiss these stories as folklore, believers argue that the long history of Theatre Royal Drury Lane provides fertile ground for paranormal activity. I love it. The building has undergone numerous renovations and changes over the centuries, creating an atmosphere that some could be- some believe could harbor residual energy from the past. You know it does. And that, listeners, is the story, storied past and history of the Theater Royal Drury Lane and its haunting. I love it. It's fun. It's light. I mean, a bunch of people did die, and that's really sad. A lot of people. But other than that... Mostly from fire. Yeah, there was that. And then riots. Okay, well, you know what... It was still a kind of light episode, yeah. so there's Enjoy that. Enjoy some theater history. Yeah. And if you want to comment on it, you can send us your comments on <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Horrorwood Podcast. Or shoot us an email at Horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can be like Jessa B and hop on over to Patreon at Patreon.com slash Horrorwood Podcast. That's great.